Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here with another episode of Ranching Reboot. We are taking a different approach to agriculture podcasting and discussing ideas outside of mainstream ranching with some of today's most innovative and progressive producers of all things edible, including war stories from veterans who have fought in the trenches and are leading a grassroots effort to regenerate not only land, but families and communities. Helping lead the charge, here's my good friend and co-host, CK. Hi, everyone. This is Ranching Reboot with Red Hills Rancher and your favorite host, CK. Today, we have Mike Calicrate of Ranch Food Direct and Calicrate Cattle Co. Hey, Mike. It's good to see you. How are you doing? I'm good, CK. Beautiful day here in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I uh, I hear you guys are getting a lot of precipitation. Mm, where did you hear that? <laughs> I'm that is that not true. <laughs> yes. Tell me more. Well, we, you know, from St. Francis to Colorado Springs has been really a dry area and also up in, up in the mountains west of here it's extremely been extremely dry so I, they've had a little bit of snow up in the snow country uh, but but uh, I was just thinking I, I was just looking through the records and we could have probably produced a grass finished animal out, out in St. Francis two out of the last 10 years it's been extremely tough uh, with with the dry weather there's dirt blowing out there yeah. That's There's really a lot so, of farmers out uh, chiseling and stripping wheat fields. So you mentioned you're in Colorado Springs, and that's where your marketing arms direct, and your production base is back in. That's right. Okay. Yeah, I've been I've been raising cattle in St. Francis for 45 years, and feeding well, cattle. I built well, a couple feedlots in St. Francis. Uh, but I got out of college in 1975 from Colorado State University uh, with an animal science degree, and went back to St. Francis and and worked on my my uh, in-laws place uh and at the same time i was riding bulls i was rodeo and i was a professional bull rider for for oh, wow. uh, several years and and so i was rodeoing part-time and and working on the ranch part-time saddling a horse most days uh mm-hmm. you know checking heat on cows bringing in a lot of new technology from my education with C- at csu to the operation and then after after a little bit i decided i i the the community needed a feedlot. A lot of grain production. We're right on top of the Ogallala Aquifer and uh, we didn't have a, a cattle feeding facility. And so I decided I'd head one of those up. I got together with 900 uh, members of the community and we built a, a 14,000 head feedlot. And mm-hmm. so I operated that for about eight years and then went over to my in-laws place and uh, ended up buying their buying them out. They were ready to retire. And uh, mm-hmm. I built a feedlot there, uh, which is about a 12,000 head feedlot. But, but this was really uh, a step up in, in design and, and the way that the feedlot was laid out. I learned a lot on the first one and I applied that to the second one. So I've, right. at the very heart of what I've always done is, is been a cattle feeder. And, and so uh, I kind of went from feeding cattle in, on a commercial basis uh, to, to feeding cattle just for myself for Ranch Foods Direct. And, and basically what happened is, is about uh, 1988, uh, I heard 
the president and CEO of IBP, Bob Peterson, give a speech to the Kansas Livestock Association. Now mm -hmm. that's 1988, so that was a long time ago. And and uh, he basically was saying that, you know, we need to make these big packers like Montfort and Cargill, make them stop feeding cattle. They've got a real advantage over IBP, who was a cash trader. And he said, you guys really need to help us uh, make, you know, make them stop feeding cattle. It's in violation of the Packers and Stockyards Act, the way they're utilizing those inventories. And he just wanted to bring our attention to it. And, and so, uh, you know, I got to thinking about that. And, and basically we didn't do anything. Uh, the organizations didn't do anything. Kansas Livestock Association, National Cattlemen's, none of them did anything. And so it was a couple of years later that Bob Peterson came back to the Kansas Livestock Association and says, well, guys, you didn't do anything. So mm -hmm. what we've decided to do is develop our own plan for captive supplies. And it's called the formula. Well, you know, I call the formula the nuclear warhead of, of, of the arsenal of of captive supplies, the weapon of captive supplies. And it was brilliant. I mean, IBP didn't have to own any cattle. They didn't have to build any feedlots. They didn't have to worry about the, you know, the 30 inches of snow that's blowing straight across the road in Dodge City, Kansas. They didn't have to worry about anything. They got all the cattle mm -hmm. they wanted without investing a single penny and without taking any risk because the feedlots were so desperate for our for a cash bid or any kind of a market for their cattle. And so the formula took off. And our share of the consumer dollar as a rancher plummeted from then until today. Uh, so the, that, was, that was what happened. And, but after, after the formula and about probably the 19, shortly after the 1990 meeting at KLA, I just started speaking out. I, I started writing quite a lot. Uh, I can't remember when I started the blog, but it was at least 20 years ago. But I, mm -hmm. uh, I just wasn't willing to be in the cattle business without a competitive marketplace because it, it's a fool's game. It's a fool's game to buy your raw material in a competitive market and sell your finished product in a predatory market. It's just that simple. You're going to go out of business. And that's exactly what's happened to ranchers and, and, and to cattle feeders. Uh, the farmer feeder, which I think is, is critical to a competitive market. Lots of those guys bidding on calves every year. That's all gone. You know, we lost over 84,000 of those cattle feeding operations and almost without anyone saying anything. And I know it's embarrassing to go bankrupt. Of course it is. I mean, uh, the Kansas Livestock Association, the NCBA, the, the land grant mm -hmm. universities, they're all saying it's because of your bad management. You should have been managing your risk, you know, trading the futures market. If you, if you really want a stomach ache and lose a ranch in a hurry, that's how you get that done. And in addition to not having a market for your cattle. And, and, and so I got to speaking out a lot and, and I got blackballed. Finally, they had enough. I, I sued IBP in 1996 as one of the plaintiffs in a class action uh, to, to, to try to get them to stop using captive supplies to depress price and manipulate markets. And uh, the big packers all just decided, you know, we've had enough of Calicrate. Let's just not buy his okay. cattle. So, I, so yeah. here I am with my 12,000 head feedlot with 14,000 in it because I couldn't sell them. And finally, the only buyer I had was National Beef. Uh, no one else would buy my cattle. And, and so finally, I just asked the National Beef buyer what was up. And he said, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but I'm, I've been told not to buy your cattle. Well, that's obvious. Uh, you know, here I am on, sitting on these overweight cattle. And, and so I called uh, Dan Glickman, who was the Secretary of Agriculture at the time, and whose job it was. 
to enforce mm-hmm. the Packers and Stockyards Act to stop this kind of thing from happening. And I said to Dan, uh, who I knew, he was from Kansas. He was, you guys know him too. He was a former legislator in Kansas. And, and, uh, and I said, Dan, why don't you just enforce the Packers and Stockyards Act? And he said, well, you know, Mike, in this day of globalization, we need big meat companies that can do business globally. And so he drank mm-hmm. the Kool-Aid of globalization, you know, the, whether it's the Ronald Reagan Kool-Aid or the Bush Kool-Aid or the, or the Clinton Kool-Aid or the Obama Kool-Aid or the Trump Kool-Aid. I mean, it's all the same flavor. Yeah. It's all the same thing. It's about global corporations having all the power they want to do business globally. And the it's this false yeah. mentality. tastes the same. Yeah. And it's this false mentality of trickle down economics, you know, that exports are going to save us. And, you know, if Packers do well, producers will do well. And it's just wrong. So anyway, yeah, I was in the lawsuit. I, I got blackballed. I called Glickman. I did call Glickman. He said, I'll tell you what, though, Mike, uh, I'll have I'll have uh, I'll make a few phone calls. And so he called ConAgra up in Greeley, formerly Montfort and now JBS. And he said, buy all of Calicrate's cattle. He basically forced him to buy my cattle. And I went empty. I just got rid of every single one. I've got a picture of this beautiful, well-designed, wonderful facility that, that was mm-hmm. serving our community well. And it's yeah. it's totally abandoned. And 15 people went to town without a job. And, and so I just decided about a year later, I said, this is a bunch of crap. I mean, we can, you know, you think about the three legs of the, sco- the stool, litigation, which I was very aggressive with, legislation, which, you know, you can work on, but with little success because of the ownership of Congress by Wall Street and big corporations and the mentality of, of the Ronald Reagan deregulation kind of thinking, which started with him. But wait, what about the solution? Would, it, would that be fun to build a, a new pathway, a safe pathway to the consumer without the predators, yeah. without the big meat packers putting you out of business, without, the big, without having to get out of bed every day and looking at the cattle futures market to see how you're supposed to feel. Wouldn't that Absolutely. be cool? Yeah. So that's what we food did. We started Ranch Foods Direct. Community. Yep. But I got to tell you, the only way you can start Ranch Foods Direct is because you have another business that makes money, the Calicrate yeah. Bander. That's where that came in as this godsend of a, of a business that let me eat while I still was investing and, and taking a lot of risk in building this alternative pathway to the consumer, which is called Ranch Foods Direct. And, and so that evolved over the years. I mean, we started out in killing our cattle in Colorado Springs, uh, GNC Packing Company. And then when they were going to go out of business, we, we got into the mobile slaughter stuff and started using a mobile slaughter unit at St. Francis. And we built a brake plant in Colorado Springs to where now we had everything under control from, from the raising of the animal to the, to the slaughter, feeding and the slaughter, and also being able to cut it up and sell it in the wholesale and retail markets. So we had our pathway built, and now it's just mm-hmm. a matter of operating it you know, efficiently and, and, and well. And, and that's where we are today. And in fact, the mobile unit just got pulled out of the building uh, here last couple of weeks ago. Really? And we've now got a standalone purpose-built slaughter facility in St. Francis. Now that we know it works, we can sell the mobile slaughter unit. It's going to Montana, uh, uh, Montana Farmers Union and Farmers Union Enterprises bought it and they're gonna make mm-hmm. it part of a teaching curriculum at Northern Montana College, which is part of the university system in Montana. And so we're gonna start yeah. teaching, cutting and, and, and butchering and all of that to students up there. And I'm really excited about bringing those interns back to Kansas 
for their for their time at, at our facility to to really learn yeah. and, and and establish that spread education. the seed right yeah. yeah that's really cool yeah. that's really cool. yeah so that's that's what i do every day and 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 i and, I, and of course that whole pathway in the last 20 21 years has been strewn with with a lot of uh hardships and and difficulties and predatory pricing and you know you you, you start to thinking you're going to be able to sell to school districts which we had five at one time in colorado and then the big packers come in and just you know blow you out uh, yeah. and, and, you know, the whole farm to school thing has failed. And we were part of that original good food project here in Colorado Springs to feed kids good food in district 11. And that all went away. Uh, they initially saved $600,000 the first year in food costs going local and getting rid of Sodexo. The next year it was 900,000. And then they decided, well, Hey, We've got self-managed now. We're saving all this money. What if we would buy cheap food like we were buying before? Well, that's what they did. And under a lot of pressure, of course, from, you know, from uh, the superintendent and, and, and the management and administrative arm of the schools that always are looking at pinching pennies. So all that's gone. We don't have any more school districts, uh, no school mm-hmm. lunch at all anymore. Uh, we had 23 Chipotles at one time, uh, going to 50 some, and they just told us we're done. They replaced us with Australian beef at 30% oh. savings. And, and, and so we've been through this. You know, I talk about the local food movement is over. And, and I see these new groups that are out there thinking they want to get a mobile unit and they want to start yeah. selling direct. And, 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 I, and you look at their, their performance and, and they've got wholesale in them. They're selling to restaurants. And I say, I need you to go in and delete that line because there is no way that you can sell profitably into the wholesale market as long as Cisco is there. Selling imported beef that is far below your cost of production. In fact, procured below the cost of production in the country it came from. There's no way you can compete with that. And they hate it because they really needed that line in there. And and they say, well, you know, we've got a friend with a restaurant. No, you don't. You may, I don't care if it's your brother. When Cisco comes in and offers them the $3,000 kickback to kick you out, plus a far lower price, it's really hard to keep that restaurant business. And they're always under a lot of pressure to make money. And now they've got their minimum wage thing coming. I'm saying, take it out. We've got to build the pathway to the consumer, not to the wholesale market. The wholesale market is a predatory market and it's one where you die. That's where you go to die. And so, you know, we want to sell direct to consumers. You know, COVID hit in March. Our retail business was 400% of the, of the year before. And we never ran out of meat because we kicked it in gear. We, we had the capacity. We had the animals. We simply kicked up the slaughter. We kicked up everything. We worked everybody's butt off. I mean, wore them out, but never had an empty shelf in our store, as opposed to the big guys who had completely empty shelves. And so right. now that business is 130% of a year ago. So you can see how much it's dropped off as the big box stores got reloaded with product, with meat, right? And, and so we, we've also, there's another uh, uh, cautionary note is don't depend on people wanting to buy from the rancher going forward as to the extent that they did initially with COVID. So be careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't get overextended. I, I, my good friend, Gary Battles, who I think is the best feedlot manager ever in the, that, there, that there ever was, 
he managed the Fairly Feedlot in Scott City, Kansas, and was a mentor for me years ago. I remember him saying to me one day, he says, Mike, don't swim out further than you can swim back. Well, who would have known how deep it, the, the water was and how many sharks were in the water? I mean, who would have ever known that, that you didn't have to swim out very far before, hell, you were eaten? And, and so I've always kept that in mind. And so when we think about building this alternative food system, do it very carefully and do it conservatively. And, and the thing that I think changes the world right now for, for ranchers and for people wanting to sell direct is public markets, public markets that are owned by the public. And that's where your cut plant should be. Go ahead, Brian. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to wait for you to pause. Um, you know, Mike, you and I talked several times last year um, through March and April and even into May about meat plants, COVID and how that was going to interrupt the supply chains and, and, and the way that could possibly get into the markets. And you threw a concept out at me of a small community cooperative nonprofit. And I didn't, I, I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that we kind of got there and covered that concept. Yeah. And, and, and Brian, this is, this is something that really is around this sort of public market concept. So I think the rancher, you and your neighbors can own a mobile unit, make it a modular unit because that way it's tall enough to kill bulls and cows. If you can start turning your coals into ground beef that you can sell direct, that's huge. Uh, if we can add value to coal cattle, uh, that's a big deal. And, if, and that would have the effect of just improving the price in the overall markets to some extent or at some, at, at some later date when you have enough volume. Uh, but but that's, a big, that's a big deal if you can sell coal cattle and get you know, five bucks a pound or something for the ground beef, which would be very competitive in today's market at retail. Uh, and, and so you can do that in your neighborhood. You, you, can, you can put that together and try to locate that, that unit in a, at a feedlot. Uh, and the reason I say it a feedlot is because uh, they've got the pens, they've got the feed, they got the water, they've got a manure mm -hmm. supply to compost your slaughter waste in and whatever discharge water from your unit you have, which is very, very minimal compared to the big packers, very minimal. You can discharge into, to, into a, uh, a pollution pond that is part of their, of their uh, Kansas Department of uh, Health and Environment. Uh, rule that, that they have to that they have to have at a feedlot, and so feedlots make a lot of sense to locate a mobile or a modular unit at, and and then that's it. That's your investment. That's all you're going to do is your community and your cooperative effort of ranchers. Uh, then the next thing will be what is your closest urban center? Let's connect the eater to the rancher as directly as we possibly can. And so what I want to do, and, and Brian, maybe you're, maybe yours is Salina, maybe it's uh, Wichita, but go Wichita. to that, mm -hmm. go to that community, meet with the city council and say, look, we need a public market in Wichita. Everything Kansas is going to be in this market. There's going to be vendors. There's going to be a cafe. There's going to be a meat market. There's going to be a carcass right. cutting room. It's going to be a food hub slash public market. And, and, you and, and you see food hubs that have just failed all across the country because of the predatory nature of the market. You can't compete with food waste, which is a other issue entirely that we can talk about sometime. But but when they're giving food waste, when they're giving food away as food waste and getting the tax deduction, that becomes a profit center for big boxes. And so food hubs can't right. compete with with waste in the market. And the other thing. And can you talk about. 
the scale of the plants that we're talking about compared to the big ones, the, the ones you're, yeah, you're yeah, trying to absolutely, introduce? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Uh, but the thing is, the, the food hubs have failed to mm -hmm. incorporate meat. And I guess it's, yeah. I don't know why, maybe the vegetarians have run the food hubs. But the thing is, meat is, is so critical in making that food hub work. That's your high value. And these are these are animals that have you know harvested the grass, which is mm -hmm. what you've got to sell, uh, Brian, and it's what I have to sell. I mean, I don't sell vegetables, uh, don't have the ability to produce vegetables, uh, you know. And I'm a long way; I'm 200 miles from Colorado Springs, and so you know, vegetables aren't my thing. My but heart if doesn't we can, like vegetables like it likes cows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I just want to see food hubs focus around meat. And, and carcass yeah. processing. And so let's put a mobile unit out there or a modular unit out there, I prefer. And let's figure on 20 cattle a day. Mm. And, and here's, here's something that's pretty interesting. Let's do 20 cattle a day and let's use five people to do it. That's easy. We can do that. Five people mm -hmm. doing 20 cattle a day is four animals per man. Well, guess yeah. how many IBP gets done per man per day? 1.57 animals per man. Per day they aren't efficient really they just no. got cheap labor that's they're lined me. up shoulder to shoulder you know sure and they get a lot of animals like one through. cut yeah they make one cut and then and none of them know the full process which we're now going to be teaching in these yeah, colleges assembly line. colleges right yeah. now that i know of that are putting in meat cutting curriculums and so we're more efficient we can do more animals per man per day through these units and then do all of the further processing but go direct to retail don't sell boxed beef and we can talk about boxed beef and what a tragedy that is and what a horrible mistake it was what a march of folly it was to even develop it to begin with i mean you go back it, it, that's really an interesting story about how it all developed but when i grew up in ever in colorado i was 13 years old when i started working at the grocery store and and i ended up working in the meat department before i graduated high school and everything we did was cut from the carcass that was 1969, 1968, 69 in there. Everything was cut from a carcass. And these guys were really skilled butchers and they were great to be around. And guess what? They drove new pickups. They, they drove nice vehicles and lived in houses that they owned. You know, not like the, the workers in today's uh, meat industry. And how much uh, that, money was coming back to the ranch gate? Out of the we were getting 68%, 68 to 70% oh, wow. of the end retail value. Today you're getting now? about 35%. So not even half. Not even We've half. Lost half. 30 years We've ago. lost half of our share of the consumer dollar because of these predators that stand between the ranch gate and the consumer's plate. And so we're building this model to go around it. So let's we're meeting now with the with the city council in Wichita, Kansas. And we're saying, look, would you people be interested in building or maybe using an existing structure, hopefully in your city center or near there? Mm -hmm that we mm -hmm. can house a public market. And if you guys need ideas on how to make that happen, look at the Reading Terminal Market in Philadelphia, which is the, my favorite market in the, in the country. There's 70 vendors under roof, all independent businesses, all paying extremely competitive and low rent rents. It's become the heart and the soul of Philadelphia. They will not allow a chain anywhere in the building. It's all gotta be independent businesses. That's what we need in Wichita, Kansas. And that's what we need in Billings, Montana, in Great Falls, 
It's what we need in Denver. And they've killed it in Denver. They killed the idea because of the developers. Your biggest enemy um, to a public market is the developer market, the rent collecting market that, that charges too much rent. And, because and, and it a, kills the aesthetic or what's Well, the no. Oh my gosh, no. These are the most attractive places in the world because there's so many right. people and so much commerce yeah. going on. What it does is it is it competes with them on the rents that they're charging oh, too much. And so they, they it's their biggest enemy. But here's the biggest threat to the developer community that runs Colorado Springs, the one that runs Denver, is, is people become a community again around commerce, yeah. around independent business and around consumers getting good food that's healthy, healthcare bills drop. I mean, all this stuff is so positive. But the problem to the developer community is it becomes a, it becomes a community of people who vote. And when they start changing the city council, to people who represent mm-hmm. people instead of business, that's their huge fear. That's their biggest fear is the public market will be a place of, of political action. It'll, it'll be a place of community organizing. It's so exciting that we can see that change from the urban center. And now all of these people that ranchers, you know, have never really met and don't know and don't understand. Right. From the vegetarians who just wanted a good steak, they haven't had, they've never had one. You know, they've they've, they've never been able to buy a non-industrially produced pork chop, and they don't want to eat it because of that reason. Now these people yeah. are all becoming their your customers. In fact, you know they're scheduling a, a tour out to the ranch. In fact, if you've got a place they can hang out uh, under an oak tree or whatever. Uh, they'll bring their tent and spend the night and teach the kids. I mean, it will change the world of ranching and of, 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 of cattle production, of, of pork production by connecting to the end consumer who now is a motivated member of this community and has suddenly transformed themselves from this aggressive price shopping consumer, which the Walton family, Walmart taught them to be, to now being a conscientious citizen and one that cares about the leadership in their own community and their state and their national leadership. So we can change it with food. I mean, that's where you really connect to people is over a meal and, and, and through food. And so the, the public market is the, is the key, I think, to making this happen. Now what you've got is more demand through, that, through the mobile or modular unit than you can possibly meet. And now you start putting in another one and another one. And you start connecting uh, on the on the mail order side of the business because now you've got this place that you can do all this commerce and all of this stuff, and and uh, and and you can you can start expanding the business now because you've got the the community organizing piece in place. Now the school board is going to make better decisions about where their food mm-hmm. comes from, and and mm-hmm. oh, guess what? Administrative salaries are going to come more in line with teacher salaries. And the importance of serving good food is going to, to students is, and how it impacts learning is going to become important. So now there went all your coal animals. Uh, we got to go figure out how to get more of those. In fact, hey, we got kind of an old herd. Why don't we go in and just peel off that, that oldest set of cows and replace them with some younger animals right now? And you can just see this thing sort of evolve. But I, I remember yeah. when I sat down with District 11 administration, after they kicked me out of, of, of District 11, and by then, I, with that, I lost all the school districts because everybody was following the District 11's uh, good food program. 
uh, I went in and, and they were extremely nervous thinking I was going to attack them, you know, for making this horrible decision of to, to get rid of Ranch Foods Direct. And I said, look, look, I am, I am, well, first of all, the conversation went, uh, the, the guy in charge of the school food service uh, said, look, it's our, our responsibility is to, is to teach children, not feed them. And the superintendent looked That's at crazy. him like, the superintendent looked at him like, would you kindly suck those words back in? You didn't say that. You did not say that. Although, by God, they both meant it. But he didn't want it said. And so they started backtracking. And I could just see they were so fearful of a confrontation. And I just totally relieved the pressure. I said, look, the reason I am here is to thank you for the business that we've had for five or six or seven years. I'm here to thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, everything changed. And I said, mm -hmm. and maybe someday, someday we can come back and, and, you know, put the program back together again. But I just, I'm here to thank you. And, but, but I did learn a lot that day about what their real, their real uh, mission was, you know, it, it's to reduce all their costs. And wow, if you could see the graph on administrative costs in education, it's crazy. Ramp. It's a 45 degree angle. And yeah, so a, you can just see, ramp. yeah, you can just see any extra money that's coming out of the food. Uh, you know, they're supposed to be separate, but you know, they're not. I mean, that's going into administrative salaries, increased administrative salaries, more administrators, less teacher pay. Teachers are treated like ranchers. Teachers are mm -hmm. treated like packing house workers. Teachers are treated like USDA inspectors. They treat them terribly and don't pay them. So we have a lot's got to change. But if we can bring people together around community with good community organizing around a public market in, in major urban centers all over the country and size appropriate markets in places like Lamar, Colorado or uh, Pueblo, Colorado or middle, the middle tier of cities, it can change, absolutely change the world and, and restore justice in, in a whole lot of areas that are desperately in need of it. Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, Mike, I, I always love talking to you. Um, when I met you about a year and a half ago out there in Albuquerque, out in the hallway, and we ended up in this uh, three-way conversation, you, me, and Will Harris. Well, really, it was a two-way mm -hmm. conversation. You and Will Harris were just standing there just chatting, and I was kind of standing there trying to keep my jaw from falling out of my head with my mind blown, just trying to absorb all your knowledge. Sometimes I just have to take a step and go, yeah, <laughs> and then catch my <laughs> breath. So mobile slaughter. I know that there's a lot of, we're talking about mobile slaughter plants and you know, small community meat plants and public meat spaces. And I really love the conversation. So why, you know, you said put the mobile slaughter plant at a feedlot. And so can you explain why maybe a more of an on-farm harvest model is a much more sustainable and a better model than transporting them to a centralized facility? Sure, sure. And, and when I, and Brad, when I talk about a feedlot, I'm not talking a hundred thousand head, you know, captive supply feedlot of, of, of Tyson or right. IVP. You know, I'm like talking about my, up, right? my ideal feedlot is maybe one that feeds 700 to a thousand cattle, in which case, they may be under uh, the uh, the provision that they don't have to have all the pollution controls if they stay under a thousand. But but you do want to be you do want a facility that KDHE Kansas Department of Health and Environment is going to like, and they like me. 
they like me because I've got the pollution controls. I've got the composting site. The composting site is so important. You've got to you've got to have that in order to get rid of your slaughter waste. There was a small plant in Las Vegas, New Mexico, that really went out of business much because, well, first of all, market access was difficult, but they were paying the the city to haul off their slaughter waste, and they just kept increasing those rates. And you simply can't afford it. You need to turn slaughter waste into a into a fertilizer and into a compost mm -hmm. product that has value that you can sell or you can put it on your own land and save a bunch of fertilizer costs. And so, so talk that's about, why I'm talk talking about, about placing these units where the animal is. If you can kill an animal where it is and not transport it, think of the reduction in stress and how that directly impacts meat quality. Do you realize oh, because yeah. the big packers have put so many small packers over the last 40 years out of business, animals are traveling much further to slaughter and they're right. suffering the shrink, the stress that goes with that. And that does impact meat quality. And, and not to and, mention the carbon cost of the transportation. Oh, absolutely. And guess, but who's paying that cost? The rancher, the, the cattle owner, the feeder is paying that cost. IBP is now killing cattle. So does all of them uh, are killing cattle hanging. And so you have to pay the freight to get them there. And back when I first started feeding cattle in, in 1978 in that feedlot, the packer paid the freight. Everything was a cash bid. You negotiated a cash bid. Back then, we were getting 60-something percent of the consumer dollar, um, you know, 65% of the consumer dollar. And, and then it all changed. So now the producer has to pay the freight. The, the animal has to suffer the trip. There's a lot of cattle today traveling 600 miles to slaughter. That is just flat out wrong. And so meat quality suffers. Uh, and and the other the other thing is, if you can kill animals where they are, your freight to get the carcass to the consumer is is thirty some percent less because you're not shipping the slaughter waste, you're not shipping the live animal, you're only shipping the carcass. So that's much more efficient uh, to only ship the carcass where it's going to be consumed. Now and there's all a, the awful and the bones and everything that don't get shipped. Well, I guess the bones are on the carcass if you have, but all the awful that, you know, all the waste that's still on the farm and can be easily composted. You don't have a large amount of at one site. Exactly. And it's going to get utilized to, to build soil health, which we think is really, really important. Right. And, and so you will have your skulls. You're going to have your feet until you get to boiling those and selling feet. You're going to have that, that, that foot joint at least that's gonna be in your bones. And so basically mm -hmm. you're gonna put everything inside a manure pile. You might even add some additional biomass, depending on or where you live and chips, what you've maybe. got. Wood chips work great, corn stalks, you know, some weeds that you bailed up out of a field, anything. Crappy hay that's sitting in the windrow. Absolutely, yeah, anything biomass that adds heat to the process. And, but, but when you're done, you you're wanna be able to screen that product and get the bones out. And then what we do at St. Francis is we take those bones and turn them into bone char. We pyrolyze mm. those bones. And so now we have bone char, which is equal parts, phosphorus, calcium, and carbon. And then that gets blended back into a fertilizer, whether it's a compost or whether it's sold in small bags in Colorado Springs for the, for the vegetable people or the, you know, the right. folks that are, that are growing food. It's a wonderful soil amendment. And, yeah. and so we go, we, but that's a lot farther than other people are going. Oh uh, yeah. But, but it, but it makes so much sense to do it. And then it's the value added, right? Yeah. Right. And then after the bones are charred, 
they're very easily broken up into smaller particle size, which mm-hmm. you can do whatever size you want. We've got a little little grinder that we use, and and uh, we're able to grind to whatever particle size we want. But but that's just another value add. But one of the one of the big things that we have to work on as we as we develop this model out more and more, is we've mm-hmm. got to find a market for hides. When I started oh, yeah. in nineteen. Uh, uh, in 2000, when I started in 2000 with Ranch Foods Direct, a hide was worth around $75. And now mm-hmm. a hide is being composted. They have absolutely zero value. But the same consolidation and concentration that we had in the beef packing side and a lot of other industries as well, we've had in the, in the rendering market and in the hide market. And so we've lost the value for those things. Now that doesn't mean IBP doesn't get anything for their hides or Tyson or Cargill or JBS. Of course they get paid for their hides, but they're processing right. initial processing of blue chrome processing on their hides. And they're no doubt going to China or at least they did go to China yeah. uh, for to, to be made into products. Well, why aren't we doing that here? Well, it's because of right. the predatory ma- nature of the market and the fact that the, the that, you know, the same predator nature of, of meat packing has gone into other sectors of our business. So we've got to come up with an idea for some hides. Let's, let's stop throwing these hides in the compost pile. And that right there alone would add enormous uh, oh, yeah. income. Another value your, add. Now, now that's, yeah. a, that's a line I want to see added to the performa at some point. You know, get okay. rid of that wholesale line, but put on the, the hide value line. You know, so we've lost a lot in in in, uh, in drop credits, what we call gro- drop credit or off all values. But at Ranch Foods Direct, we're selling all of our hearts and our livers, our tongues at, at good values. You know, if once you get your product project going, you're gonna you're gonna have a pet food line uh, with all of those things in it, mostly livers and hearts and and, and ground beef. Uh, people are really concerned about feeding their dogs the way that we have been feeding people that's made us so sick. We've done the same thing to our pets. We've made them right. sick with bad nutrition. And so mm-hmm. we've got a very nicely growing business in our pet food side. Uh, we, we sell a one pound uh, package of, of ground pet food. And then of course the bones are a wonderful treat too. So, you know, we're, we're selling bones at a good value. So, but, but I want to hit back on that, on that public market thing and, and, and how that's so key to this to the success of these of these enterprises of slaughtering where that animal is uh, that needs to be financed by the consumer and by the public, not by the rancher. The rancher's already way out there on his risk and extended on his on his mortgages and his i mean he's, he's putting up way more than his fair share of the capital of that it takes to put food on the plate so let's mm-hmm. talk about John Eichard's community food utilities. I think it's the smartest thing I've ever seen. And John Eichert, who's one of the smartest guys I've ever met and one of the nicest people I've ever met, former uh, uh, economist and, and professor and, and now retired. But, but John Eichert uh, has got this concept called community food utilities, where the community, the city of Wichita, puts up the money. They put up the place. They own it. No developers are welcome ever, never. It's the community that owns it. It's a nonprofit that serves the community and will most certainly serve the city in a good way. And Not so somebody like the Batista brothers. No it? way, no Batista brothers and no 
developer equivalents of the Batista brothers. And, and so this is, so you, first of all, you've got to get a city council that's friendly to, to, to small business and doesn't just cave and, you know, put in a stoplight with an arrow for every chain that shows up. Uh, you, you need them to put the money and the infrastructure in so small businesses can thrive and be protected from the Walmarts and the dollar stores and all of that. In fact, make dollar stores illegal. That would be a good thing. Make dollar stores illegal, like Tulsa, Oklahoma. There are a few cities around that have set a good example. Why do you hate Dollar General so? <laughs> See, that, that's the waste economy. You know, what we've done right. is we've developed this industrial model of corporate control of our economy. I, I mean, and, what do they and, ever do to you? They, they come into these small communities, they provide jobs, they, you know, they have products that people in a community yeah. need. What, what's wrong with that? Yeah, well, that job, you know, that job works great along with the welfare uh, check that you can get or the, or the food stamps that you can, that you can spend that whatever store might take them. Yeah. It's, it's really a tragedy. Uh, I talk about how Walmart, uh, kills and consumes the prey, small business in right. main street and the dollar stores eat the decaying remains. Right. So when a dollar store comes to town, it's over, it's really over. And little old Falcon Colorado out East of Colorado Springs has two of them right across the road from each other. And so we're living in, in the waste economy. You know, we're, we're, we're living in an economy, the secondhand economy, basically, uh, when the dollar store shows up. And unfortunately, we even had a dollar store come to St. Francis, Kansas. So the cafe that my friend Gordon Ross and I had breakfast at and a bunch of other of the farmer and folks in the community ate at for 20 years from probably 1990 to 2000, whatever, went out of business. And I kept telling the owner and the, and the proprietor in that, in that cafe, I said, you can't charge $4.50 for breakfast. Oh, yeah, but nobody can afford it. Nobody will pay more. Well, she ended up going out of business. So the building was there. They scraped it and put a dollar store in. So the very cafe that had the community table that all of us met at every morning at six o'clock for 20 years, where we did good things for the community, where we planned and did neat stuff, where the Calcrate Bander was designed on a napkin or, or the back of a placemat. And by the way, we saved all those drawings, those engineered drawings. Uh, th that's where it all happened. That is wow. now gone. It is now a dollar store. It cannot get worse than that. And so what remains on Main Street is now under the pressure of selling waste at the dollar store up on the highway, not even on Main Street, it's up on the highway. So even in my own town of St. Francis, Kansas, I wasn't able to stop the dollar store. I'm just one citizen. But at least we can raise awareness, you know. Yeah. And in the last year, I, you know, we've definitely stopped shopping at dollar stores since we kind of realized some of their implications on the supply chain and really due to the we've encouraged several of our friends to do the same. And yeah, you, know, you get backlash from somebody. Oh, well, there's there's three people that work there. My sister works there. She has a job. Like, well. What about the grocery store that's suffering that had to lay off two people because Dollar General put in a food section? What yeah, about those exactly. Two people? Yeah, and what about the healthcare she lost when she left that grocery store when it closed? You know, yeah. yeah. The part-time 29-hour-a-week job at Dollar General so they don't have to pay healthcare. So what you got to see when you look at a dollar store or, or a Walmart or most chains is a business that externalizes its costs. So I always said, if, if you could see that there was a, a scanner that when you left a Walmart would give you the dollar value of what your food really cost. I'm talking about the cost they've externalized from labor right. 
to sick people who eat that bad food, to the environment, to the meatpacking workers all being paid below living wages. My God, you can't believe how expensive that food is, but you don't pay it at the register at Walmart. It's going into the Walton family's pockets and, 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 and to shareholders. Uh, so that's how you have to start seeing these, these businesses that are part of the waste economy and part of what causes a waste economy. And so what you see selling at dollar stores is a company that went out of business because Walmart was standing on their neck. And so we've got all that inventory that has to get sold or thrown away or whatever, but it's going to go through a dollar store first. And, and just like the vegetables and the fruit and the produce items at a, at a big box store, when they give that away to a nonprofit, they get a tax deduction that basically gives them the, a value higher than the price they paid for it. So now oh, wow. even the waste that they throw away is making them They're money. They're making money off of Plus wow. they get to claim the credit of being a good community member that gives things away, a philanthropist type right. you know, benevolence to this company that, oh yeah, there's a good reason, Brian, to shop at that place because they give food away. Oh, yeah. yeah, but what did they do? They gave food away uh, to, to, and, and it's reduced the local demand for the for the community supported agriculture project that's in town or the farmers market that's in town, and and the real evil that arised out of this out of this special IRS treatment for food waste is a company called uh, Food Maven. It started here in Colorado Springs. They were getting free food from the big box stores, and they aren't allowed. They weren't selling it at retail. They were selling it into the wholesale market the you know the 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 restaurant hotel institutional market but they were coming in at half price compared to the regular wholesale market for all these items and so when that farmer from the arkansas valley that grew those beautiful cantaloupes or watermelons or asparagus or whatever it may be and they show up at the back door of the restaurant well the food maven truck has just been there and dropped off everything that farmer has except at half price so it just completely destroys your local regional market development when you've got this food waste stream that's profitable to the supplier that's giving you the food waste and putting everyone else out of business because of the of the low prices that it's being offered at so that's something that is that has popped up here in the last several years that really did just wipe out the wholesale market for, for local suppliers. And it's only profitable because it only exists because of legislation and it's only profitable because of subsidies. Absolutely, serious subsidies. And we don't see externalized costs as being subsidies typically, do we? I mean, we see, we see the farm subsidies for growing corn and soy that we don't need. Uh, that benefits the next buyer of that product, which is the big food companies, the big feeders, the big hog uh, integrators. You know, they're the ones that are benefiting off of that. So we, as consumers and citizens, we, we kind of understand those kind of government subsidies for, for farmers, but we don't, have, we don't have any idea the amount of subsidies that all of us are providing every day uh, in the way of taxes, uh, in the way of supporting these companies that, that externalize costs. I mean, the, I mean, it's we got so many homeless people. We got so many people living under the bridge and on the streets uh, right now in Colorado Springs. It's just so sad. And and I'll tell you, we had a mayor, the mayor before last, uh, that decided he was going to solve this homeless problem in Colorado Springs. You know, 
and and he was it was just such a brilliant idea i can't believe we all haven't thought about it but his his idea for eliminating that homeless problem was to make it illegal you know how simple i mean done it's it's solved right right yeah let's just make it yeah. illegal i mean yeah he made it drug. illegal that, that, that won the war on drugs right we just make absolutely you make it away. illegal and and basically his his you know his town cops are patrolling the you know the the stream uh, side uh, locations uh, along Fountain Creek and elsewhere, and they're just running them off. Mm. Well, what what ha- where'd they go? They went somewhere else, but we certainly as heck didn't solve the problem. And of course, this was one of those city mayors that you know, if a Walmart wants to come to town, you know, well, I'll tell you what, we'll give you a stoplight. Uh, we'll give you a turn lane. In fact, would you want a double turn lane, perhaps, with an arrow? We'd be if happy to do that for you. Want some tax breaks and maybe some free Oh, by gosh, too. yes. The Walton family has more wealth than 40% of Americans. Let's give them a tax break. Of course, at the, in the, at the same time, you know, they're, the small business is just going, yeah, they're filing their bankruptcy papers. Because they're raising taxes on Main Street every day. You bet. And they don't have any customers because the, the aggressive price shopping consumerism has taken over. Honestly, if you want to treat a disease, I'd love to find a cure for it. But the aggressive price shopping consumerism is one of the one of the worst things we can do and you know for self-interest. It's contrary, it is the most contrary thing to our self-interest that there is being an aggressive price shopper. So I go into Ace Hardware here in Colorado Springs, one of the, of course, one of the better hardware options. And, and they say, do you have a rewards card? Every single time I go into Ace, do you have a rewards card? And I say, no, I want to pay more. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I say, no, I want to pay more. Mm-hmm. And they look at you like, are you crazy? And I say, no, I want you to get paid better. I want you to get a living wage. And they'll look at me like, yeah. oh, my God, you're a, you're a wonderful person. You're one of but those. Then but then they'll say, <laughs> well, that'll never happen <laughs> because yeah. it's going to get sucked up into shareholder returns, right, or whatever. But but still, I think that has to be the attitude. I, all these discount cards and, you know, you know, payback cards and all this baloney out there that we get a wallet full of cards and I don't want any of it. I, I want to pay. Mm-hmm. I want to pay a fair price because I know and that's how I, an economy should work. So yeah, a little earlier, you kind of almost veered off down a rabbit trail. I was hoping you'd go down talking about how <laughs> corn and soy subsidies end up mostly in, in the bank accounts as profits in these multinational meat corporations and, and even multinational food corporations that that produce baked goods like uh hate to call them out but you know, like Nestle and Kraft and in general can you unpack that a little bit Mike well if you don't have a marketplace that fairly distributes dollars within the economy competition is is so so important and this is why when we declared our independence in 1776 what we were really doing is declaring our independence from monopoly and back then mm-hmm. it was the crown. It was the, it was the crown and it was the East India Company, the corporation of that day. Uh, and, and so we were leery of corporate power from the very founding of our country. And, and, and we hated monopoly. And we've shown our hate for monopoly again, uh, the robber barons, when we broke those guys up in, the, in 1900 and, and to 1921, when we finally broke up the big meat packers. And so our country, is a, as a rule, has hated monopoly. And the, and the reason we hate monopoly is because they interrupt the, the economy and the flow of dollars from the consumer back to the producer or the worker. And, and so when you inject that abusive market power of monopoly, then what happens when you, as a, as a solution 
to lift producers so they don't all go broke and we starve, we decide we're going to subsidize them. Well, rather than break up the monopoly and, 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 and restore competition, we feed the monster. We give the monopoly more money because if you give a farmer the ability to produce for less by subsidizing him, then the market is going to fall like on corn or soy or wheat or cattle or whatever it may be, the big corporations are simply going to pay less. And boy, did they. And Brian, you talked about the producer share of the consumer dollar right up front. It was 70%. Now it's 35%. We've lost half our share of the consumer dollar. And that is because of monopoly power and, and abusive market power of big corporations. And so any subsidies that we give out, uh, even if it's to workers, well, then we just lower the wage or we take away the health care or we do something to keep them in the same place that they're in. And that is a place of poverty and despair and and, and modern day slavery a little bit. Exactly. And, and so yeah. rather than subsidize uh, and making taxpayers pay more for everything via their tax dollars, break up the monopoly power and restore competition into the marketplace. And I am not talking about rancher, rancher to rancher competition. I'm talking about overall competition. I'm not talking right. about beating the crap out of your neighbor and selling your calves cheaper. I, I'm talking about competition in the various sectors in the, in the industry, from retail to meat packer back to the feedlot and, and to, the, to the ranch gate. We just need an environment of competition. And, and good things happen when, when you do that. And so, you know, IBP has been on a mission from the very, very start when they started their company, which is now Tyson IBP, but they've been on a mission to eliminate competition. In, in fact, I, I heard uh, that th there was a really good book I, I, I read here lately uh, called Post Corona. And it was about this professor of, of economics and finance at some Eastern university and he was saying, the only thing I will invest my money in is monopoly. I won't invest in anything except a company that has a monopoly position in the marketplace. Because guess what? Nobody else has a chance. In the end, nobody else has a chance. You've got to invest in the monopoly. And so why is Wall Street doing so good when America is doing so poorly? It's because Wall Street represents the monopolies of our country in the world. That is something that is contrary and inversely related to the welfare of Main Street workers and small business. And so the more you see Wall Street going up, the more you're seeing the opposite occurring in St. Francis, Kansas, in rural America, all across the country where people actually do the work. Look at, look at healthcare. Look at the hospitals in California that have the monopoly on healthcare and what they've done right. on charges on hospital charges. It was on 60 Minutes the other night is the reason I bring it up. They totally have a monopoly. And it's during COVID. I mean, yeah, they can't even distribute the vaccine. They're so concentrated and consolidated and so poorly managed with so much of the money going to administrative rather than to doctors and nurses and healthcare workers. So it is time for a reckoning right now. We have to break up monopoly power. And there's, there's four really good books out right now on that. If you go to my blog, you, you'll see them on there. Let, let's take a minute and define monopoly because maybe not everybody has a clear concept of what you and I, of, of what the three of us do, uh, about what we're talking about with the meatpacker monopoly. Because on the surface, somebody can look at right. it and say, 
oh, well, there's four meat packers and they only have 83% of the market. How is that a monopoly? So can, can you break that down a little bit, Mike? Well, technically it's not a monopoly. It's an oligopoly. Uh, you know, they're, they're the buyer. So they're not the seller. Uh, so on our side, from the cattle producer's side, it's really an oligopoly. But who wants to define all that stuff? I mean, didn't we all grow up playing the, that horrible game called Monopoly? Yeah. You know, and I, don't you remember when you were the first one out and had to sit on the couch and everybody was making fun oh. of you? And, and, and when you just my little hated. nephews and nieces want yeah. to play it, I'm like, no, thank you. Yeah, I, I hate that game. I hate it. It's a, it's a game <laughs> that divides. It's a, it's a game that divides, right? You don't, nobody likes each other when it's over. And, it's and not a so, good game of Monopoly if the board doesn't get flipped. Or right, have you seen right. the uh, the little, there's a little clip with a boy crying and he then she goes, why are you crying? And he's like, taxes, like taxes, like this is tough, taxes. <laughs> like but welcome that, to the but, real world. But, but really it, it was an amazing game to teach the, the, oh, absolutely. What, what is wrong with Monopoly. And, and, and so basically Monopoly is concentrated power. And what we've done with the word is we've, we've expanded its definition really to cover the oligopoly and, and, and all of the other, you know, monopsonies and everything else that's out there. Let's not be too technical. Concentrated market power can get to the, yeah. to the level that it is monopoly. And so four meat packers controlling 83, 85% of the beef market in our country today. In 1975, IBP was advised by a Boston consulting group that they should cooperate with the other big packers, not compete. I know that from an executive vice president from IBP that I got to be friends with during my lawsuit against IBP. And so ever since then, we've, we've been fools playing in a fool's game because they've been rigging the darn market. And of course, now you see the result. They've stolen half of the ranch share of the consumer dollar or the feeder cat or the cattle producer's share of the, of the, of the consumer dollar. And, and so we've been played played by organizations that were captured by the big meat packers like National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the Kansas Livestock Association. They even took our check off and used that against us uh, to, to promote the best interests of, of these big corporations. And, and so monopoly is when power is so concentrated that you lose competition, that the consumer is getting a raw deal as well as the producer and the worker. And so back in, in 1921, Senator John B. Kendrick from Wyoming was given his statement on the floor of the Senate. And basically what he said was today with the meat packers, so highly concentrated, five of them controlled like, like 50 to 70% of the market. I've got to look that up again, but it was big. I mean, they were really concentrated and they owned vertically right. from the, from the railroad all the way through to the, to the retail basically. And, yeah. and so so what happened was, uh, Senator John B. Kendrick said, look, they've got their hand in the consumer pocket, they've got their hand in the producer's pocket, and they're sucking it out of both. And boy, is that ever where we are today. And so we need legislators, new legislators, the old ones, we just well get kicked out of there. But we need hmm. new legislators that will support the breakup of monopoly power. And we've got such a great group right now with Barry Lynn at Open Markets, we've got Family Farm Action. And they are really focused on breaking up, uh, uh, you know, concentrated power. And 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 uh, an obvious leader right now in this effort is is Elizabeth Warren. She didn't she didn't get the nomination as as the Democrat candidate, but my goodness, she's she's good. She's good on mono on this monopoly power stuff. 
And, and you know, when we talk about politics, right. this, is where, this is where the rancher gets in trouble. This is where the cattleman gets in trouble is they want to join a team. They want to be part yeah. of, a, of a team. And, and I had a, an attorney, Buck Watson, back in 1996 that told me, he said, you know, Mike, politics is about addition, not subtraction. And it's also not about division. And so what we've done, I think, in, in rural America with farmers and ranchers and, and people who have honestly been screwed so long by monopoly power is we've allowed ourselves to be divided in which case you mm-hmm. lose. And so I don't really care if they're Democrat or Republican. Do they, do they want to fight to break up monopoly power? Well, Elizabeth right. Warren does. Cory Booker does. Tim Ryan does. Yeah. Mike Lee, staunch Republican conservative, does. I mean, it's the Republicans. Based on yeah. their party platform, they should be the ones going after abusive market power, not a bunch of liberal Democrats. But the yeah, Democrats are supposed to be the small government party. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's like, yeah. But the more concentrated yeah. power gets, you know, the, the bigger the government gets, because yeah. then the concentrated power owns government. In fact, I put out a blog piece this week about how the temple of democracy has really become the castle of the lords of, of big business. And, you know, we've got K Street. I was on K Street back when Obama was was uh, the, in fact, it was the, it was the day or before his inauguration. I, and I was in, in uh, Washington, D.C. in uh, uh, Tom Daschle and Bob Dole's lobbying office, Alston and Bird in their, and boy, you talk about a palace on K Street. And so they've got all the hors d'oeuvres out and, you know, they're serving some, some snacks and different things. And the inauguration is going to happen. I mean, it was like that morning at 10 o'clock and it was going to happen at noon. And I'm in there with my friend, Herman Schumacher and uh, Tom Daschle's there, Bob Dole, he's somewhere in the building. Uh, But there's this whole circle of lawyers, young, mostly young guys standing in the Mm -hmm. circle. And I said, now remember this was, this was 2008. And I said, uh, I said to that group of lawyers, I said, you know what really needs to happen here in Washington, D.C.? Oh, what? what? What's that, Mike? I said, we need to turn K Street into low-income housing. And we need to turn the mall into a garden so they can eat. And my goodness sakes, old Herman, he backed up because the fight was fixing to be on. They hated what I just said. Mm-hmm. We need to get rid of those lobbyists in Washington. We need a citizen government, not a corporate-controlled government. And so. Tom Daschle saw right away that it was fixing to be a real battle and, and there was going to be some hard feelings. Probably he just stepped right into the middle of the, of the circle. And he says, Mike is right. <laughs> and so that's how it was left. And, and that, and, and, and it's only grown worse. It's only gotten worse. And so it's time for a reset. It's time to restore competition. It's a, it's a, it's a time to, to, to restore a citizen's government instead of a, instead of a get rid of the Citizens United thing that lets corporations donate all they want to, to political campaigns, that's all needs to go away. And, and I don't know if it happens under this administration or not, but I'm putting all the pressure I can on right. and I'm supporting groups like the Open Markets Institute and the Family Farm Action Group. Uh, and, and give you just a little history on the open markets thing, Barry Lynn, who I really learned my story about, about monopoly power, uh, from when he spoke at a, at, at 
a group that I was uh, a part of here years ago, uh, he, he told the story about how we have declared our independence from from concentrated and monopoly power, you know, twice at least with 1776 in the in the robber baron era of the early, of the early 1900s. And he says, and now we need our third revolution now, today. Yeah. We need to declare our independence from concentrated power. Well, Barry had was was part of a group uh, that worked on this this open markets type stuff. And it was financed and, and, and funded by Eric Schmidt, which is one of the founders of Google. So he's one of the richest people on the planet. And so when Barry started, you know, working on Monopoly, wasn't Eric Schmidt an obvious target at some point? And so it all came to, to, to an end when in Europe, they fined Google like $5 billion for their antitrust activity. And Barry Land put out a news release remember that, that yeah. supported that, that said, good move, Europe. We've got to do it here in the US as well. Well, it took Eric Schmidt just about 10 minutes to notify Barry Lynn that he was done. His funding was cut and he was on the street. And mm. wow, how awesome it was. He started Open Markets Institute, which doesn't have any of those monopoly players in there as funders. And now, now what's it looking like? Well, the, the uh, antitrust uh, subcommittee uh, of, of, our, of, our con of, of our federal government had the hearings with Google, Facebook, and, and uh, Twitter. And Twitter. There you go. And out of that committee, they voted to break them up. Yeah. Now, see where Barry Lynn, and this was all, this was much of Barry Lynn's doing. In fact, Zephyr Teachout and, and, uh, and, and uh, some of the others that testified that day were, were part of the Open Markets Institute. And, and so now it's kind of come around almost full, full circle to where Eric Schmidt is going to be faced with, with some antitrust action. Uh, I'm, I'm very, and, and of course, we just need more Elizabeth Warrens and, and people of her mentality in Congress, in the Senate, both House and, and Senate, to, to, to push this through because it's honestly a freedom issue. It's totally a freedom issue. If you don't have oh, a market, absolutely. you don't have freedom. There's not, you don't even have a semblance of freedom if you don't have a market for what you do. And then I remember, so they got fined $5 billion from Europe, right? I remember right. talking to that to an, my internal team and one used to be the founding member of Google. And he was like, yeah, that's not a big deal. That's one day of revenue for them. Exactly. Like it, Google doesn't care. Yeah. And I thought that's huge. Like that's, that's crazy. That that's, well, has and, no impact. And have you guys been looking at the fines that, JBS has agreed to, and Tyson is agreeing to. They right. laugh at that stuff. They're, they, 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 they've already made the money. They're just going to give part mm -hmm. of it back, That's and like, yeah. then they're going to get it back again right away out of their supply chain. It's going to come like, right out of your pocket as a rancher. It's going to come right out of, right out of that uh, worker on the line. They're going to speed up the chains. Watch them speed up the chains. They'll make that money back in a matter of hours. Uh, yeah, they're just going to mm -hmm. sit there, look at their watch, and go, uh, yeah, it's two o'clock. Fines paid today. Right. Well, if you're going to fine a company and if they haven't honestly done an illegal act, you don't do a settlement agreement where they they admit no fault. Because unless you take away their power to keep doing it, as well as remove their ability to punish, I mean, they, they are going to punish Congress. They're going to punish all of us to get that money back. And they're not going to oh, change yeah. a single thing that they do that gave them the ill-gotten gain to begin with. So what's the fix? 
you know, we're, we're kind of touching on a little bit of politics and policy and, you know, we're kind of trying to straddle a line and not get partisan. And I really appreciate that. So is the fix more legislation or simply enforcing what we have on the books, or is it maybe some deregulation or a combination? Well, one of the, just hit the dereg thing, uh, part of the bit, what gave us the problem was the dereg mentality of President Reagan, when he said, you know, government is the problem. Well, really, he was just speaking for big business saying, look, we want fewer rules, we want to be able to make more, and, and lie, cheat, steal without, you know, being prosecuted. Uh, that's what that really meant. So I think it's, I think it's actually more effective regulation of the right things, not just regulations that put small meat plants out of business or regulation that puts small business out of business. And be careful on the minimum wage. If you put a $15 minimum wage on to a small business that can't externalize that cost, that can't just raise their prices, that can't just pay less to their to their suppliers of, of whatever, you're gonna make a big, big mistake there. Uh, I'm all in favor of living wage, totally in favor of, of people not having to worry about food and shelter. We've got to pay a living right. wage, but we've got to be smart in the way we go about it. And it's just too easy to just say, okay, everybody has to pay $15. Then you end up with nothing but big box stores and Wall Street-based companies that are just going to pay their raw material suppliers less or their suppliers in general less, or they're going to, they're going to take it from someplace, but they certainly aren't going to take less return on their invested capital. But Brian, I think right. what we have to do, step number one, is we have got to have a recovery program for aggressive price shopping consumerism. We have got to turn consumers into citizens again. We have got to take part. We have to be educated. And, and who was it that said it an, an, an uninformed citizenry, you know, cannot, cannot be a democracy. We have got to figure out how to get informed. And I'm not talking about all the the, the, the conspiracy theories and all the lies that we've lived through the last, gosh, 20 years and really in the last four. But we've got to get informed. We've got to get the truth out there to, to what really is possible. First of all, what's the problem and how do we go about fixing it? And then I think you end up with a more effective government with better people that aren't, you know, that aren't getting money from the corporations, either through you know, the Citizens United corporate financing of, of campaigns or other ways. <clears throat> and we start to enforce the laws that are on the books from the Clayton Act, the Sherman Act, the Robinson-Patman Act, and the Packers and Stockyards Act, which is relevant to, to our, our friends in, in the ranching and in the, in the livestock industry. Uh, we need a Secretary of Agriculture that believes in, in antitrust law enforcement. And, and the one we have, the new one that we have right now is, has not shown that he is. <coughs> yeah, uh, well, we've been around with Vilsack before already. So he's kind of, right. you know, same. But I'm giving him a chance. You notice the stuff I'm putting out on my blog or whatever. I am not, I am not calling him out, but I'm, I'm giving him the opportunity to be different than he was the first round. With, I think with, that's, I think that's totally fair. I think that's how we, I mean, we cannot make everyone our enemy and expect to move forward. We, we've, we've got to work together. And, and I, am, I am just hoping and praying that Bill Sack comes with a different attitude, not Mr. Monsanto. Case, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I, I know you've caught some shade before about, uh, about aligning yourself with the Humane Society of the United States and these other animal welfare groups that don't necessarily have. Um, that most producers don't traditionally have a very high opinion of. Um, and kind of, I guess what I'm getting at is, 
you know, we need to get past some of this mentality of winners and losers and align ourselves with some of these other groups that do have our mutual um, shared interest in mind at the end of the day, even though they may have done some stuff in the past we don't really like, or they have said something over here we don't necessarily agree with. As long as we can share, you know, 80 to 90% of our core vision about, you know, local food, local food systems and making the better place. I think mm-hmm. that's you know, Brian, we talked about politics is about addition, not division, not subtraction. Humane Society has 11 million members, and they're pretty motivated folks. I mean, it may be because they like cats and dogs, which I do too, uh, but these people are not vegetarians. 95% of them eat meat. They just don't want Tyson, JBS, and Cargill's meat, and they certainly don't want Smithfield's uh, meat, and, and, and so... 11 million people, 11 million members is power. It's a powerful group. And it's a, it's a group that industrial agriculture is going to try to create a case against and sell it to the producers, the ranchers, the farmers to hate because they don't want them against them. And when I, we went in there with the Organization for Competitive Markets and aligned with HSUS on the checkoff issues, country of origin labeling, they totally agreed mm-hmm. with us. We need country of origin labeling. We want to know where our food comes from. And the checkoff is one of the biggest frauds ever perpetrated. And that sh- <laughs> and all it does is support industrial ag. That's got to go. But at the same time, we had these groups like Humane Watch, uh, which is uh, Dr. Evil. What's his name? Uh, uh, that 60 Minutes special was on uh, uh, Richard Berman, Rick Berman. And he's out there putting all these videos out about how bad the Humane Society is. Well, you know, that's sort of, that was a lot like the QAnon conspiracy stuff. I, it honestly wasn't true, <clears throat> but it didn't matter if it was true because he was able to plant the seed of hate and contempt yeah. against HSUS. But the fact is, they did us a lot of good during that alliance. <clears throat> they supplied the legal help to file the cases, which haven't gone anywhere because we don't have a fair judiciary. We've got a judiciary that really supports big business. And, and so we got a whole lot of work to do, but, uh, but it is important that we align with other groups that have similar interests. You know, even like with RCAP, they aligned with the, with the consumers union. Now there's even a bigger group of people that we should most certainly be aligning with. And please, you've got to understand, everybody listening has got to understand that the consumer is not the enemy. And when I got into Ranch Foods Direct, I, I mean, it was a, such a wake up call because now I was dealing with the people who were buying the food and eating it. And, and man, is there ever a variety of beliefs and, 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 you know, people, different kinds of people and all, I mean, it's just, it's wonderful really that we have this diversity. Uh, And, and oftentimes I think from the agricultural community, we have rejected diversity. I mean, go back to St. Francis, Kansas. It's a German Russian community. It's white. And I remember when my oldest son was in school and that black kid showed up, his mom worked for the telephone company and she was a single mom and had a black child. And what an awesome kid. And, and all the kids in school loved him. He was a fantastic wrestler. His name was Kyle. And, and, but it was, he was unique. He was this weird thing that came to St. Francis. He was black. And none of these kids had really been around black kids. They may have seen him, but you know, this was way back, uh, you know, 40 years ago. But we reject diversity in, in, many, at, in many cases. And, and we honestly think our success may have to be at the expense of another person. And that is just a flawed argument. Uh, we yeah. are, we, our success is, is, is going to be dependent upon the success of, of everyone. And, and, you know, we create a lot of wealth in agriculture. 
it's really where the wealth comes from. Soil, water, and sunshine has been a continual miracle. Wealth's created every year. And, and we are the wealth creating engine, but we are the, also the ones that are the most impoverished. I mean, honestly, Brian, we get a negative return on our asset. We eat into our equity. We don't even get a wage. I mean, a farmer, a rancher selling below cost of production is- is You get paid? He's worse off than anyone else in the economy because, I mean, look at the suicide rate among oh, agricultural producers. I mean, I, I lived so through the 80s. I mean, the 80s and we're this back again. Worse. This is worse yeah. than it was. Well, and, and then we got these guys like Bill Gates buying up the farmland. Oh, yeah. And all it is because he's got too much money and where are you going to park this much cash? Let's, let's generally, remove that probably a good investment. You know, so let, let's talk about that for a minute. You know, we talk about, you know, you said there's 11 million members of the Humane Society. You know, how many people work in ag? Like what, yeah. 2 million? Yeah, yeah. And that, and right. that includes like all the migrant, migrant farm workers that, that come in and pick crops. That includes seasonal labor. That's not the people that are- And they have no vote. They have no vote. And that doesn't include, you know, the number of people that do what you and I do and some of our previous guests that are full-time livestock. That number is is a shockingly small percentage of the population. Like there's less than a million of full-time raising cattle. And, you know, you want to talk about a minority voice? We've got the minority voice, even though, you know, we're sitting here a couple white white guys and the last couple guests have been white males and we are changing that next guest. Uh, we do have a mm -hmm. young lady coming up for our next guest schedule, but we're trying to bring in, you know, and we're trying to give everybody a voice, not just yes. the existing producer. So something else I want to get into is, you know, you talked about the checkoff, the checkoff promotes sales of, and us as cattlemen, we just want to sell cattle. So we're getting, we tell us how the checkoff screws us. Well, the, the control of the checkoff lies in the hands of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, which is really a meat packers organization. They claim to be the Cattlemen's Association, but then they added beef in and they put the big meat packers on the board and, and it's now really just a meat packers organization. And so basically what they've done with the checkoff is they've got an 80 some million dollar marketing budget to market beef and to benefit the packers. And much of that money is diverted to lobbying. So much of that money is, is going on into, into Washington, D.C. to get the kind of legislation that benefits big meat packing, big retail over the producers who have to pay the checkoff. And, and so basically what you've done is you've been asked to buy your own hanging rope and you have got that done. And in fact, almost, well, over 40% of you, of us, that have bought our own hanging rope have literally died. That are, we, have, we are literally out of the business. And if you are a cattle feeder, a farmer feeder, 84,000 of you have died by that hanging rope. And you have absolutely no voice, as you've said earlier, no voice. I mean, we are such a minority that we can't get anybody to pay attention even though we are critical and essential to the economy and to human survival. So we do have to align with others. And that checkoff is being used to divide us, to keep us divided. And so you got the big feedlots that are aligned with the meat packers. They're going to be on the other side because they're, they're benefiting from the checkoff because they got a sweetheart deal with a big packer and they aren't being if affected by low cattle prices. Where the independent farmer feeder 
he's already he's wiped out. He may he may still have a little equity left, but he'll get that he'll get rid of that here on the next round or two, or the next Tyson fire, or the next COVID outbreak where they totally destroy the market for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Yep. So yeah, the checkoff is is a is a terrible thing. And and I I you know I've been fighting it since '96. I didn't vote for it. I didn't want it uh, to be controlled by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. I'm not saying a checkoff couldn't help us, but it certainly can't help us when we don't have any control over it. Right. The intention I think was good. Right. Ranchers don't market their beef very well, so we need someone to help with that. But I think it's definitely like you guys have said, just not done that. But when I heard Bob Peterson, CEO president of IBP speak to the governor's conference in South Dakota in 1996. And he told Mm -hmm. us that we don't care about quality. We only care about quantity. We're going to be cooking your meat like the pork and chicken. We're going to cook your meat. What flavor do you want it? I mean, what a horrible thing to tell a bunch of ranchers, a thousand people in that, in that auditorium that day, most of them cattle producers to tell them that he didn't care about quality when they raised the best cattle on the planet. Right. I knew then that that checkoff wasn't about promoting quality beef. It wasn't about promoting the interests of ranchers. It was, and that was 96 when they merged NCBA and the checkoff together. And I said, okay. uh-oh, this thing's on the wrong track. And guess who's on the board? Guess who's on the board of, now of, of NCBA, IBP? Full circle, I think, is what it sounds like. Yes. Oh. I think we unpacked a lot and I, I we're coming up at time. So is there anything else you'd like to say um, before we end? Also, our listeners, how can they get a hold of you and where can we find your blog? Absolutely. Uh, I'm My blog is, is MikeCalicrate.com. Uh, so you'll see what I do if you go to MikeCalicrate.com, C-A-L-L-I-C-R-A-T-E. And, and I, mm-hmm. you'll see what all the things I, I'm involved in on that on that page. But then you can click on the blog. I've also got a listserv you can subscribe to. And I don't just cover you up with news and stuff. I, but when I see something that I think is really important, <clears throat> I make that available on my on my news listserv. And then I'll, I'll do a blog post, you know, periodically, not not too much of that as well. But but anyway, that that's how you get a hold of me. And and I'm I'm somewhere between St. Francis, Kansas, and Colorado Springs every week. I go back and forth. Okay. Right now, I'm driving the carcass truck uh, because we we I'm using a smaller truck, not not using the semi trailer, uh, because our docks under construction. That's going to be done in the next two weeks. That's going to be really exciting, and I'll put some of that up on the blog so people can see. This is going to be a model of a slaughter facility that's going to we're going to want to replicate around the country. So, right. uh, Brian, when you get your uh, modular unit set up and you've decided, okay, we want something more permanent. I'll have a design for you to, 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 to build it. Yeah. It's going to be really cool. Too. Yeah. Yeah. So I think just so one it. other thing. Yeah. Just one other I, thing we like to touch base on is if you could, could give uh, advice to any young person like me who wants to get started in the same kind of direction you're doing, uh, what would, what would your advice be? Well, I'd, I'd form a public market community infrastructure community, right. a public utilities commu- committee, and I'd start building that out. And I always talk about how I want to start with the end in mind. Who was right. it that said that? I forget. Uh, anyway, some guy that, that was really good. Uh, uh, but anyway, start with the end in mind. So don't just go by or, or 
go go don't go buy a bunch of cows and sell into a low calf market and, and lose your grandma's money. That, that's really not what we should be doing. Or family and friends money of any kind. We don't want right, to lose right. that. So let's begin with the end in mind. Let's let's implement the community food utilities concept. Let's create the market and then let's start building that supply chain into it, which we can do super fast. We can do it really quick. And 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 but I want to start with that with that public market, that connection to the end consumer. And guess what that's going to do? If we get that done in a few cities, all of a sudden, the big packers have a really rough time explaining to people why they have to buy those cattle so cheap. And all of a sudden, you go from 35% share of the consumer dollar to 40 and 45. Mm -hmm. And in the next 10 years, you're back to 65% and rural America is alive again. And we get the next generation that's what's so important that's the most important thing that's right that's right the next generation and with that mike it has been an absolute pleasure to have you with us today and i hope you'll come back soon thanks and and have another conversation with us we're really looking forward to getting this podcast underway i appreciate you joining us so much thanks for your time today wow what a great conversation with an amazing guy mike calicrate always blows my mind every time we get a chance to chat i hope you guys come back and join us next week We have a really cool guest lined up. She is a young lady that I think epitomizes what we're looking for in the next generation of stockmen. Um, She is a grass nomad. She's appeared on several other podcasts. Uh, Don't want to give it away, so you'll have to come back next week and find out who it is. Until next time, I'm Red Hills Rancher. Have a good day.